Thousands of people followed Jesus physically 2,000 years ago as he was going around Galilee. Thousands and thousands. He chose, I need two hands, 12 people to be especially close to him, to especially find, be with him and see his teaching and see his miracles. He was going to do extraordinary things through them. They were his first team. And for the last six months, I've been really looking forward to these next few weeks because I find the disciples of Jesus really fascinating and encouraging to read about. And hopefully, as we go along over these next few weeks, all of you will get some of that excitement, not just from me, but whoever's speaking, and you'll sort of say, oh yeah, these are people we want to know more about. Most of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector, and some were craftsmen. But we don't know loads and loads about them. But God chose them, and God chose them for a purpose. Over the next few weeks, we've got a twofold focus that we're going to be looking at. We're going to look at what the disciples were like individually, and sometimes we might have several disciples that we'll talk about on one Sunday morning. But also, we're not just going to leave it there. It's not just going to be a history lesson. We're going to be thinking, how does that apply to me? What were they like? What did Jesus say to them? What is God still saying to me today about all of those things? What were Jesus' disciples like? What is a disciple anyway? So today, just as an introduction, we're going to look at some of the basics about what the disciples were and what Jesus did and just get an an overview, a bit of an idea what's going on. There's two Greek words. You know a lot of them are Greek words. So we've got two Greek words here, mathetes and apostolos. The first word is really interesting. Mathetes, it means a learner, a pupil, a disciple. Now, can you think of an English word which is a bit like math? A test. Did I give you a clue enough with that? <laughs> Mathematics. Yeah, because math test means a learner, pupil, disciple. Mathematics means fond of learning. That's what it means. Or willing to learn. So if you're into mathematics, you're fond of learning. That's what it's about. So that's interesting, isn't it, for starters? Yeah. <laughs> Apostolos, a messenger, one sent on a mission, an apostle. And you might know already, of course, that not everyone who was a disciple became an apostle, and not everyone who was an apostle was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But we'll learn about all of those sort of things over the next few weeks. You probably know, because I'm sure all of you have read the Bible many a time, there's four canonical gospel writers There were other gospel writers, of course, as well, but they weren't putting into the canon of scripture. And so the four uh, canonical gospel writers were, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Were they all disciples of Jesus? Were they part of the 12? No. No. Oh, I love it when you get the answer right. That's really good. So we can shake our head because they certainly weren't, were they? Matthew and John, they were... One of the, they were two of the twelve. Mark, now he knew Jesus 
because Mark 14, 51, 52, many people think, talk about Mark or John Mark in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can look it up and find out what he was doing there if you want to. And many people think he got his information for his gospel, the shortest gospel, from Peter. So that's three, Matthew, Peter and John. And then there was Luke, and he was a disciple of Paul. And so he got his information from lots of interviews. So I put that as a, an amber kind of tick, because I bet some of the disciples he talked to. And says, oh, what did you think, Thaddeus? And what did you think, Bartholomew? And what happened there, as well as talking to other people? So there are some of the apostles, the disciples rather. What about, if you're on mastermind, how many of the disciples could you name? Shall I give you a clue? It's not grumpy, happy, bashful, <laughs> sneezy, dopey or doc. So if you think that any of the 12 were those, they're not. They were someone else's disciples, weren't they? But they weren't Jesus' disciples. So can you think about it then? Can you name me some of the disciples? James. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I was hoping someone on this side would say something. That's brilliant. Okay. But gold stars are plenty over there. Let's have a look at some of these lists. Now, all of these uh, notes are on our website, as they always are. So you don't have to look them up now. But Matthew 10, 1 to 4, Mark 3, Luke 6, Acts 1. So if you look on the list, you've got loads of people all there. And these are the 12 disciples. It's a bit small to look at on there. But like I say, it's all on the website. Some of them have got like these square brackets because it says very definitely they were brothers. So it's linking the brothers between them. So have a look at them at home because that's all the list about them there. John doesn't explicitly say these were the 12. So he sort of mentions the 12 and he mentions names I've written, put them there. So you can look at them and just sort of say, oh, okay, they're the 12. And they're the people we're going to be thinking about over the next two months. Interestingly, one person is called a traitor. And that's by Luke. And Matthew and Mark says, who betrayed him? And that's Judas Iscariot, of course, isn't it? Because in these lists, they would sort of say a little bit about them, like in Matthew, Matthew calls himself the TC, not Top Cat, but the tax collector. And in Mark, James and John are called Sons of Thunder. So things like that are interesting to look at. A bit small to see on the screen there, but like I say, everything's uh, on the website. So where do we get the information from for these 12 disciples? Well, that's really easy, isn't it? Because you're going to say it's from the books we've just mentioned, the four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and Acts as well. Bits and bobs are written about them. Sometimes it might be just a sentence about some of the disciples, and sometimes you might get quite a few verses about what John did or what Peter said or his actions or his opinions and things like that. So we get bits from some of them, the ones that aren't well known, and some of the disciples get quite a few uh, verses written about them. 
I'm always interested in, like I've said before, about having my imagination and just wondering what went on. And you probably remember this verse from John 21. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And when I think about that, I think to myself, ah, that's about Jesus. But this extra info would include more information on the 12 disciples too. So if the gospel writers had written maybe another few paragraphs on their papyrus with their sort of pens and everything, would have learnt more about the disciples. Can you imagine them sitting round and eating a meal together? wonder what Thomas felt after Lazarus had been brought back to life. Do you think he found it a bit hard to sleep that night? Because he wasn't that excited about what Jesus was doing. What about Thomas, I wonder? He was on the mountainside when Jesus spoke about the Beatitudes. No one else had heard that before. We're used to reading all this and we've read it many times. But when Thomas heard it and all the other disciples and the throngs of people around him, it must have been, oh, fancy saying that. And they'd have been shocked by some of the things that Jesus said and did. I wonder what, say, Peter thought when some people were healed, maybe the leper, and he looked at the bystanders and their jaws were literally on the floor like a cartoon might be because they were just so amazed that these divine things were happening in front of them. What impact did Jesus have on all their lives? The 12 disciples followed Jesus for quite a few months, three years or so. They must have heard some great things and seen some wonderful sights. But near the end of their time with the physical Jesus, I wonder if they'd had a school report what grade they'd have got. It's really easy. They'd have got an F. Fail. Then all of his disciples abandoned him and fled. That word fled is the Greek word fugo. And that means to flee away or even more sort of getting you in your heart to seek safety by flight. So these disciples have been with Jesus for three years or so. And yet when the aggravation and then when the hard times happened, they scarpered because they were more interested in saving themselves than standing up, stand up for Jesus. They wanted just to flee away. That's not very good. How about a few months before? John tells us this. After this, many of the disciples, of his disciples, turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus was very challenging in what he was saying. And so some of the larger outer ring disciples said, oh, can't be doing with that. I need to go back. I need to look after my family. I can't follow Jesus if he says things like that to me. Probably quite a few of you have read Enid Blyton. I know I did when I was younger. It was great. The Famous Five, The Secret Seven. And I know Enid didn't write Magnificent Seven, not at all. But there's these collective noun ideas, these adjectives, 
with numbers. I wonder, this is rhetorical, you don't need to say it out loud. Could you think of a suitable collective noun for our heroes? The what 12 would recall them. God had decided to use this group of men for his purposes. When he'd risen, when he'd ascended into heaven, they were going to take the gospel to all the world. This was plan A. There was no plan B. I'd have done it different if I was Jesus. I bet you would as well, wouldn't you? I would have had a super disciple. Because I do it every day of the week, or nearly every day of the week. Someone will come to my house, and I'll sit down, and I'll listen to them play the piano. So it's just me sort of sitting down, maybe the mum or dad behind me. And they're playing the piano, and I'm giving of myself and saying, oh yeah, that was really good. What about playing it like this now? What about doing it that way? And so there's just me, the one who plays the piano fairly well, and then this person who's a beginner or kind of getting a bit better. And I'm just one-on-one just saying, oh, how about this? How about that? And I notice, because I do lots of lessons in schools as well, in a group, that often the person that's just on their own with me progresses a lot quicker, does things a lot better. So, yeah, oh, God, why did you get a group of people? Surely one super disciple would have solved all the problems. I'm glad some people are shaking your head. Because the thing about a group of people coming to see me, or any other teacher, of course, is is this. They don't just learn from the person at the front or standing up. They learn from each other. And I've noticed lots of times, because I've been doing this a long time, teaching music, that sometimes children are talking to each other, and they're learning from each other. And sometimes then I say, I never thought of it like that before. It happens every week. Sort of, they say something, and so I'm learning as well. And so the disciples talking to each other and listening and, and sort of just seeing what each other is doing is just another way of learning. And so this super disciple, bad idea. We needed more people than one-on-one with Jesus. We get our information from the Gospels and from Acts. And if we just had it from those, we'd probably think from the Gospels especially, they could have done better. Like I said earlier, probably they'd have got a, a fat F fail because they hadn't done so well. They fled. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. But as we read through Acts and these early char- church fathers, people like Eusebius, Clement of Rome, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Hippolytus, Tertullian, Oregon, and Jerome, they tell us what happened in the decades after Jesus had risen and ascended into heaven. They tell us that they weren't failures. They tell us that they went hundreds and thousands of miles to talk about Jesus and to express what God had done in their lives. They were sold out for God and they were more concerned with what Jesus told them to do than their own comforts and their own careers. So we might have thought bad of them five minutes ago, when we were thinking about them fleeing for their own safety. But when we look at these other traditions and what the early church fathers say, and what a lot of the speakers, I'm sure, over the next few weeks will bring these things out and not just say what happened in the Bible, 
but what happened subsequently and where they died, because only two of them, two of the 12, weren't martyred for Jesus. Judas, obviously, and then John, who died a natural death. He was the last disciple to die. But all the others were martyrs. So, yeah, the something 12, or the something 11, if you like, we could call them now. And what I want to say is, hooray for plan A, because God knew what he was doing. Having a group of people follow him and do the things he asked them to do was brilliant, because God sorted it out. Now, last week, I was suggesting an agenda for this year. And it all was working round this word embrace. Just to remind you, the definition of embrace that I said last week was to accept something or someone willingly and enthusiastically. So we're suggesting that we, this year we want to embrace God wherever we are, whatever day it is, whether we're on our own or with others, and we want to embrace God no matter what the cost. Embracing God to accept something or someone willingly and enthusiastically. As the 11 disciples embraced God, so he was able to let himself flood into their lives and change them. They were different people for following God, for embracing God and doing what he said. But that wasn't the end of it. If Jesus just wanted 11 or 12 disciples and that was that, when he died, they'd have just said, oh, okay then, thank you, we're his disciples, that's it. But Jesus gave a really clear demand or command. He didn't just want them to be disciples, he wanted them to make further disciples. Here's what he said in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Help the people to learn of me, believe in me and obey my words, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, remaining with you perpetually, regardless of circumstance, on every occasion even to the end of the age. And that's Matthew 28, 19 and 20 from the Amplified Bible. I'm really interested in those three words, those three verbs, that Jesus wanted them to learn of him, believe in him and obey his words. That's what making a disciple is about. That's what becoming it as a disciple is about. When we learn, believe and obey what God says. If you were here last week, you'd have seen me put this up on the screen. And it was just to sort of point forward to what we were saying today. Because the Olympics in London and in every other city where they've happened, like in Seoul in 1988 and uh, other places, then it's not just, oh, let's have the Olympics and let's just make it happen. It takes years. It's planned. It's a process. And that's just like we are as disciples it's a process. We don't have to just say, Lord, I'm going to be your number one disciple, the super disciple, like we briefly mentioned earlier. We're saying, Lord, today, what can I learn from you? How, what are you going to challenge me with? 
What are you going to say to me personally as I read the Bible, as I talk to other Christians? Because the good thing is, God hasn't finished with me and with you yet. And as over the next few weeks we read more about the disciples, we want that to really come out. But also we want to think about, I shouldn't be finished with me either yet. We shouldn't be satisfied with the way we are, the way we act, the way we do things. If God is saying something sort of as a whisper or as a loud megaphone voice and he says, don't do things that way, learn from me, take my yoke upon you. Then over the next few weeks, as we learn how the disciples were challenged by God, So we want to be accepting that challenge in our own lives as well and knowing that God hasn't finished with us yet. The end isn't there. So we've got a twofold focus. Probably, maybe like me, you've been round London a few times. I've been round London lots of times. I love it going there. And sometimes you will hear a whistle going. A whistle. You'll hear loads and loads of sirens, but sometimes the sirens, you just kind of, they kind of merge into the background and pedestrians might ignore it or some motorists even, but there's a whistle. And that's saying there's a senior politician that were sort of drive, because it'll be motorcyclists, police motorcyclists, with whistles in their mouth. So, oh, that's not a whistle. Oh, can anyone whistle? I've lost my whistle. Can anyone whistle for me? Oh, thank you very much. That's brilliant. So they're riding their motorbike and the Queen's behind. And so they're going really fast, stopping the traffic with a whistle. Brilliant. And then sort of, and then someone else on the police outriders will come along, stop the traffic. And so can you see what's happening? The whistle is making you pay attention. I've heard God whistling to me about NCF recently. And what he wants us to do over the next few weeks is listen to the whistle and say, Lord, I don't want the siren just to blur into the background. You are whistling. You are saying something important. I want to hear what you have to say. We've got our bit to do. This is why, this is uh, Paul talking to Timothy. This is why I would remind you to stir up, rekindle the embers of, fan the flame of and keep burning the gracious gift of God, the inner fire that is in you by means of the laying on of my hands with those of the elders at your ordination. This is our bit to do, to stir up what God's given us already, to pray for others and to seek that God will bless them. Again, not to be content with what we can do already, but Lord, help me to do more. Help me to be the person you want me to be. But the other day, when I was going around B&Q, Something really dawned on me. God spoke to me in B&Q, which is brilliant. This is what he said. God is playing in his team today. And I thought, oh, I almost dropped the thing I was carrying because I was thinking so brilliantly that God is not leaving us to be the team on our own. God is playing in his team today. And there's lots I don't understand about God. In fact, there's more I don't understand than do understand. Is it the same with you? Yes. 
Yeah, oh, brilliant. I'm not looking silly in front of everybody then. Because the thing is, God is amazing. God knows what he's doing. And we know just a minuscule amount of who God is, his power, his authority in creation, and how he can change Nuneaton. Doesn't Nuneaton need changing? I was listening this week, well, I was watching a video on YouTube. It was terrible. It was from the council chamber in Coton Road. They were shouting. There was no respect for each other. Think of the House of Commons. It's exactly the same with the councillors in Eton. It's just that it's seemingly behind closed doors, but anyone can go to these public meetings. Anyone can, if you find the right YouTube channel, you can see what's going on. It's awful, terrible. We should be praying for the councillors. We talked about it briefly earlier about the leaders, didn't we, when Jean prayed. It's terrible what's going on in the council chamber. We could do something about it. We could write to them. We could email them. We could go and see them at their surgeries. That was a tangent, by the way. But it's really something that, as the church, we should be doing. We should be saying, this isn't good enough. You shouldn't be shouting. You should be showing respect. Here's something I don't understand. William Temple, he said this. He was an Archbishop of Canterbury. Brilliant man. When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. It's so true. I know the more I pray, the more coincidences I see. Isn't that a great encouragement to pray? To say, Lord, I want to hear from you. I want to be on the team that you're part of. As we pray for our families and ourselves, the Lord's going to do something. And for our work colleagues and the allotment sharers and all sorts of things that we see. So God is going to do something. But we need to pray. We've read our bit. How about God's bit? Then he said, this is from Zechariah 4, chapter 6. This is God's message to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You will succeed because of my spirit, though you are few and weak. Are we few and weak? Is it by God's spirit that we are going to be successful. In our own strength, is Nuneaton going to change? Is the estate going to change? Are our lives going to change? No. No. As we pray and ask God, Lord, will you do something in my life, in the lives of the people that I love and know? Lord, help us to be knowing that we're on your team. Last week, we looked at several people who were God embracers. Stephen, Paul and Silas, Abraham with Isaac, David and Thomas. Remember, they were people just like us. And yet they embraced God and said, Lord, whatever the cost, whatever you're saying, I'm going to stand up and be counted. That's what the challenge is over the next few months, the next two months. As we read about these disciples, not just to say, ah, they were special people. God called them. That was different those days. Life's a lot faster now. We are all on God's team. God is not just on us, on our team. I've written a few words down. He's our captain and our coach and our manager and our physio 
and our chief cheerleader combined into one. He's on our team. All we need to do is go. The other week, we were saying, we're on the cusp. If we sit still and just say, Lord, thank you for the disciples. You bless them. Thank you. Amen. We'll be on the cusp for a while, but then we'll get into a rut and not a lot will happen. But as we seek God and say, Lord, thank you for making me on your team, for calling me, for making me your child. So who knows what's going to happen in our own lives, individually, collectively as a church, and what's going to happen as maybe hundreds of people get saved in Eton. It happened in 1905. It can happen again. As we seek to follow God, to embrace him, and say, thank you, Lord, for those disciples. Thank you for your first team. But thank you, Lord, I'm on your first team now. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us to get us going, or whatever the word is, to really empower us and to change us and to change Nuneaton too. We're going to pray, and then Jewel's going to help us respond. So, Lord, we thank you that you are our cheerleader. Thank you, Lord, that you're our manager, our physio, our captain, all these things, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you are on and leading this team. We're so thankful for what we're going to learn about over these next few weeks. But, Lord, we don't want it to be an intellectual exercise. We want to get excited to know that you're still doing the same things that were happening to the first disciples, Lord. You're doing those things around the world. Lord, we long to see you doing similar things through us so that you will be glorified and so that people will come to know you, Lord. Lord, we're thankful and we look forward to what's going to be happening over these next few weeks as we get to know these people from the Bible. Amen.